0: Chattahoochee, copyright 2023, by Randy Cooper. All rights reserved. No parts of this podcast may be used or reproduced by any means without the expressed written permission of the author. Chattahoochee, chapter 6. A few weeks passed, and I was working around the clock. I did everything I could and tracked down every possible lead, and I was beginning to feel desperate. Meredith Boxter was a junior at Kennesaw State University. I interviewed other students, faculty, boyfriends, classmates, even the people who parked near her. I interviewed her landlord, her neighbors, and all the people who provide services in her apartment complex. We ended up finding her car at a Waffle House off Delk Road. I interviewed employees and regular customers. The last place she was seen alive was Dan and Brewster's which is a combination restaurant and large game room. I interviewed the employees there. We went door to door to the houses that line the river between the gravel pull-off and the island. We even interviewed people from the church she attended with her parents. Every single person who knew Meredith Boxter told me what a beautiful, sweet girl she was. I was frustrated at no end. One thing that really bothered me was that other than the body, the blood trail, and the fingernail. No other physical evidence was found. No clothing whatsoever, not even a button. When Tyra and I did a crime scene reconstruction, we theorized the perpetrator brought Meredith to the gravel pull-off. Whether freely or under some pretense, we don't know. The altercation began there, as evidenced by the fingernail that was snapped off. At least this is our first glimpse of an altercation. Tissue analysis had confirmed that it was Meredith's fingernail, score one for Tyra. Once the confrontation started, she was taken by force across the rocks to the island. In all likelihood, both arrived with wet feet, shoes, and pants legs. At the tip of the island, the perpetrator attacked Meredith with a large blunt object, which I suspect was a rock because of the jagged edges of the wound and dirt inside the wound. The blood trail told us Meredith survived the initial blows and may have attempted an escape from her attacker, indicating a possibility of injury to our perpetrator. Running for her life on an island in the dark, she had nowhere to go. The assailant eventually caught up with her and administered the final blows. Now here's the part that confuses me. The killer removes every article of clothing from her, pants, shirt, bra, underwear, socks and shoes and carries them out with him. That indicates a high degree of planning and forethought, it's too much to believe that he carried this out without premeditation. He'd at least need to plan to bring a bag to carry out the clothes. Consider the amount of time involved in removing the clothing. He's comfortable with that location. He's comfortable taking the time required to remove the clothing. This means we have a hunter. I cannot imagine that this is his first kill and unless he's stopped, It probably won't be his last. He intended from the very beginning to pick a victim, take her to a remote location, kill her, and dispose of the body. He also remembered to bring a rope to tie her down to the riverbed. Question: Why such a poor job of securing the body? Does this simply reveal inexperience, his first kill and concealment, or perhaps dawn was approaching and he was concerned about potential witnesses. The body was tied to the bottom at one of the deepest parts of the river. The killer would have had to have been completely submerged in cold water at night. That tells me there's a high degree of motivation and resolve on the part of the killer to complete the task just as he had planned it. Having done this, he exit the water and inspects his work. Seeing no body float to the surface, he approves, gathers the bag, throws the rock, which we believe to be the murder weapon, into the river and trudges back to his car soaking wet. Now I'm trying to draw a picture of our killer. There's a lot of physical activity going on here. He's young, under 45 years old, and or in reasonably good shape. Normally, I'd lean towards a male, but there's nothing that blatantly disqualifies a female from having committed this crime. This type of premeditation proves an above-average level of intelligence and mental stability. Knowing the planning involved of bringing a rope, a bag, perhaps even scissors to remove the clothing from the body tells me our killer put a lot of thought into this. Certainly not a crime of passion, and with no enemies, the motivation for killing Meredith Boxter is simply selection of a victim, rather than her being an actual target. Another thing that bothers me is the fact the body was nude. Why remove her clothes if not for the purposes of sexual assault? We found no evidence of sexual assault, so that's a dead end. Or is it? Perhaps the motivation was to humiliate and debase the victim, or gain sexual gratification by demonstrating power and control over the victim. My other theory on this is that it demonstrates a great deal of self-control to have complete authority over a naked woman and for him not to commit a sexual assault. The flip side of that is that the perpetrator simply isn't ready for that yet or it may indicate his own sexual dysfunction and this act is enough to provide him the sexual gratification he is seeking. The wet clothes. The killer probably lives alone. Consider the alternative, coming home late at night with wet clothes with someone else in the household. Presuming they were not involved, they would likely question that. Or is it possible the killer stripped naked, got into the water, and then put his clothes back on? Everything in my gut tells me we're going to have another victim. I checked against all other metro agencies for similar cases or missing young females, but nothing seemed to click. He'd gotten away with this one for now, and he's likely going to bump it up a level. We call this escalation it's like an addict who builds up a tolerance and needs more and more of a drug in order to get high my mind is reeling with these questions and inconsistencies going back and forth in my mind the LT is following my daily reports closely and sees I'm making progress even when I'm not making any progress that is bringing in a suspect he's urging me on which I'm guessing is purely for political purposes. I'll do a dog and pony show for the higher-ups, I'll go to a press conference, but no way, no how will I bring in a person of interest just to say that we have a suspect. My boss is Lieutenant Jake DiNapoli. He hails from NYPD and he's been down here for almost 20 years. His career move came right on the heels of 9-11. If you were NYPD You are just short of being nominated for canonization. Not to say he doesn't deserve his rank, because he does. And I respect him, because he's seen more homicides in his career than I'll see if I work two lifetimes. Jake is not easygoing. He's a hard-ass New Yorker, and he doesn't cut people any slack. He is also an excellent mentor. He doesn't guard his experience. He shares it. He teaches, although it sounds more like yelling. And he is a tenacious investigator. Attaboys are rare. He believes a kick in the ass is more effective than a pat on the back. Jake does have one weakness though, and that is cigars. He loves the damn things like a hobby. Shops them, talks them, surfs the internet for them. I don't understand it myself. To me, a $100 cigar stinks just the same as a $2 cigar. But he seems to appreciate the difference, and I guess that's all that matters. An Italian Roman Catholic, he displays pictures of his wife and five kids alongside the presidential commendation all New York cops received after 9-11. Somehow he manages a job, plus coaching a little league team, teaching a catechism class, and spending evenings with his wife. If he could bottle his secret and sell it to cops like me, he could retire a millionaire. When I entered his office, he greeted me in his normal, cheerful, and cordial manner. What the fuck do you want? Hey LT, I thought we could talk about the Boxster case. What you want to talk about? I read the reports. You don't think I can read? You think I'm stupid or something? If I thought that I could help you, you'd be the first to know. I just need some direction here. I feel the investigation is beginning to lose momentum. He stopped for a minute and was silent. Sit down, Dvorak. I sat down like my ass was on fire and the chair was full of water. I've been hearing things. Why do I feel like I'm talking to the Godfather right now? I've been reading the reports. You're doing the right thing, but I hear other shit too. Shit that maybe like you's been hitting the sauce a little too hard, huh? Well, LT, he cut me off simply by displaying the palm of his hand. My years, I seen a lot of guys drink on the job and be good cops, Dvorak. He paused. Yous ain't one of them. You ever heard the term functional alcoholic? Well, LT, the hand stopped me again. Yous always interrupting, Dvorak. It's not good manners. You should show me more respect. Yes, Don Dillapoli. I'm not saying this officially because I need to enter that into your personnel file. And I hate all that fucking paperwork, you see. But I'm asking you respectfully to lay off the booze a little. It's not good for the department. You see, you guys are like my family. And when people say bad things about my family, it makes me angry. And I don't like to get angry. Capiche? I waited for what felt like was an appropriate amount of time, and then answered, Yes, LT. Capiche? As I left his office, I felt as if I had one more drink, I'd probably end up finding a horse's head in my bed. I have to tell you, Jake's effective. Can you imagine him in the interrogation room? I'd confess to things I didn't even do. Okay, LT. Point taken. I'll cool it. Tyra looked up at me when I came back and sat down in my chair. LT give you a little pep talk? I snapped out of my fog quick. He just wanted to pass on what a bang-up job we were doing, and he felt the investigation looked very promising. You gonna tell me what he really said? I just smirked. Ha, never. Hell, you're probably the one who snitched me out. I did know one thing, though. While Tyra was saying her prayers that night, I'd be praying too, praying we got a break before we got another victim.